The Quarantine Chronicles. Welcome to Rage Against the Mainstream, your full spectrum source for all things music, insight, and opinion. This is another installment of your new favorite miniseries, The Quarantine Chronicles. This is Quarantine Chronicles number five on May 11th, 2020. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. Doing swell. Quite swell. Nice. Has, uh, has anyone found anything new or interesting in the past week? Uh, I finally caved and I've been listening to the new uh, Fiona, Fiona Apple album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Nice. <laughs> when did that come out? Uh, like a couple weeks ago, April 17th. Oh, nice. Looking at the Wikipedia. Sweet. Um, friends, if of I the had pop- to pick a standout track, I'd probably go Cosmonauts. Nice. Cosmonaut. I'm going to have to yep. give that a listen. I've always liked Fiona. Yeah, I'll have Co- to check Cosmonauts. it out. We, we have plenty of time on our hands. I mean, there's no excuse not to listen to it at this yeah, point in time. Yeah, there's literally nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. What about you, Bill? Um, speaking of new music, uh, friends of the podcast, Alica, they released their um, new single, Cabal. Cabal, the banger. On Friday, or, you know, the Friday that just passed. Um it really kind of tickles my fancy. I know you think it's a little bit more on the core side, Steve, but I mean, yeah. at the end of the day to have a band, I mean, they're about two and a half hours from us, but I mean, still technically kind of local. I mean, they do play well, the I was smaller say, venues like, and stuff. I know of it. Like I got a friend who's in this band called Strychnia who they're on Apple music and stuff like same way you can find like Alka and they're kind of like the same way. Like I appreciate the music and I was listening to that song um when you showed me the other day um and obviously like i the guitar works excellent the production's excellent the technicality in it is excellent the drumming was what really really impressed me um but yeah i mean even like it doesn't really fit my general core of like taste um it's still listenable like because i'm a huge fan of death metal and all things death metal so it's easier for me to kind of rationalize and enjoy a band like that um, but I always have that fine line at like Black Dahlia, Murder, Lamb of God. But still, it's in, for me, even so to say it's a good song. It's it's a good song. Actually, I don't know if if I had ever told you before or if you heard the episode. Um, but RJ actually filled in in cognitive for a tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had he had played in cognitive <laughs> for I think it was like two weeks or something where Shane couldn't go out. And uh, he toured uh, the West Coast with uh, cognitive back last year, the year before. That's funny, but what do you shout got, out to my boy uh, HBL over there, <laughs> little young Ingve. Um, nah, in, in something new too, just because Bill brought it up with death metal, eighties um, Polish death metal band Vader, who's been around obviously for quite some time, releasing music. Um, it's really weird. Like I look up like when new albums are coming out, especially when on the heels of like the new Lamb of God approaching with Black Dahlia Murder approaching. But like underground and like even just extreme metal in general, it's hard to find a list of like upcoming albums where it really tells you everything. Yeah. So I was just like scrolling through music and I clicked on Vader one day because I wanted to see if they had their first album because it's still not on here on Apple Music. And there it said new album May 1st. And I'm like, what the fuck? So obviously I checked that out. And it's just it's like it's crazy when you see some of these older bands of like if you're not a fan of death metal, I mean, it's going to go way under the radar for you. But a lot of bands that I'm interested in putting out new music, especially being around that long and that quality of music, fucking album's excellent. 
I was actually really impressed with it for 2020 death metal from an 80s band. But yeah, I'm going to check yeah, that out. That shit's in. It goes in, dude. You'll like it. One thing I always thought about death metal was like, it's kind of different in other genres and like in other genres, you're kind of making simple music and trying to make the best possible, simple, catchy combination. But with death metal, yeah. since it's more based on skill, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like, and ridiculous skill, like yeah. you're, you, you, you can get better as you go on. You well, know that's I mean? the thing. That's like the trick. It's like every death metal band had it in mind where it's like, let's see how many times we can change our time signatures. Let's see how fast we can play these drums and let's see how many riffs we can fit into one song. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and the, the physicality is the only thing that could hold you back from yeah. theoretically not getting better or whatever. But that's really the fine line as well, because a lot of these bands that incorporate that style, you're either going to sound awful or you're going to sound like really well put together. That's why I always relate back to Death, because Death was one of those bands, especially in their progressive years, where they started to become more technical and away from that just traditional death metal sense. And it fucking worked. Like the amount of talent that was put into that, the amount of differences in their like the riff changes and the time signatures, it, it just it worked. It fucking worked brilliantly. Well, what I always thought about with death metal is, you know, it's not really as much of the brutality as most other, you know, metal subgenres is, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't have to do with the brutality of it. It has to do with like Connor was saying, the technicality aspect of it and yeah. like pretty much how like fitting 10 pounds of shit into an eight pound bag. Like that's pretty much yeah, death metal as a whole. And it's like every genre, like if someone like if you went and looked at guys from like the Minutemen or the Descendants, you wouldn't think that they were punk rockers because most cliche people picture Sid Vicious when people say like punk Ramones. rock. Yeah, the Ramones, exactly. exactly. And same oh, yeah. thing with grunge. Like if you look at like some of 90s bands like Helmet and like other bands that kind of just dress like 90s regular people, you know, because they didn't fit that criteria, you would assume like that can't be that type of band. And then as well is like Cannibal Corpse. Cannibal Corpse is what really put a generic staple on what people expect from death metal. That's the first reaction. Oh, this song's probably about fucking babies. Yeah. Probably what every death metal song is probably about when, you know, obviously that's not the case. But I think Cannibal Corpse is when it really like put a generic label on what most people imagine when you hear the term death metal. Well, that's the thing too. Cannibal Corpse is like an extreme example of the genre. Definitely. And you know, it's crazy. Cannibal Corpse goes back to the eighties. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you think a lot of those bands that came out in that time, I mean, the late eighties, the Florida scene, I mean, yeah, Cannibal Corpse, because they're still so relevant, the fact that they've been around since pretty much all of them, especially when it kind of hit more of like a mainstream concept where death metal was actually more recognized. But Have you guys I mean, ever heard of um, Cannabis Corpse? Of course. I have not. It's They're like super satirical death metal. It's it's actually Members pretty good. I'm not even going to lie. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's like a Steel Panther for death metal. Pretty much. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. I always like Yeah, you'll have to check like them parodies. out. They've been around for actually quite some time. You'll have to check them out. Awesome. Oh, 06. I'm on the Wikipedia. <laughs> um, Something else, that's, that's my new catchphrase. What, Cannabis <laughs> Corpse or Wikipedia? No, I'm on the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> another Are you thing... contributing more to the Bush page? Sorry. Yeah, right? <laughs> Not lately. 
I found out actually my username has been suspended. I have to take it up. I forget the bloke's name, but uh, he's in for some shit. <laughs> um, another thing for newer interesting too is I was dicking around on YouTube as I normally do, where I find everything that I recommend. And um, me and the wife are sitting down, and I put on like "We Are the World." Everyone knows that song, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, you know Huey Lewis, Huey Lewis, fucking Bruce Springsteen, you name it, they're in the song. We were talking about like vocalists and stuff, and you know, like people being really good. And they had the recording session that Michael Jackson did for "We Are the World," and it had no music, and it was him singing in the room by himself. And dude, it was one of those things where the fucking hair stood up on your arms and like, it was just like, like for who was this? I'm sorry. Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. Um, it, was, it was Michael Jackson. Yeah. It was one of those like times, like we talk about it or we've mentioned it countless times about, you know, like forgetting or looking past all the crazy shit. And it was like one of those moments to where when you heard his voice come on, it was just like you forgot about every accusation and allegation against him. And it was like this fucking dude is the fucking man. But regardless, I went on to watch the We Are the World 1985 behind the scenes uh, DVD rip on YouTube. And it basically just went through what like what went into making and producing and recording the song. That song was recorded in one night over the span of like almost 13 hours. Damn. And it happened yeah. right after the AMAs. Almost every person, actually every person that was on that song had attended the AMAs that night and had gotten rides. And they probably just to, got roped into it. Well, no, th- this was set up uh, prior, and I guess they had studio time that was booked, and the AMAs just so happened to happen that night. And they literally, Oh, well, that's probably genius. They, they might have done that around the AMAs. They might have been like, oh, shit, everyone's going to be in town. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, And they literally took limousines right from there, right right from wherever it was held, to the studio. And everyone was just piled in the room, and it just happened. I think Michael Jackson was the only one not to go because he was recording. And um, I'm telling you. Michael Jackson was like, I got to get us ready. Oh, dude, I'm telling you, when you if you guys get the chance, I highly suggest to watch it. It's like 56 minutes and it's just incredible. When this you, quarantine has really had me digging the the hour long YouTube videos. <laughs> I'm telling yeah. you, if you're into hour long YouTube videos, this is the one to watch. Just type in the we concept are the world, of YouTube 85 behind the scenes. Is still like my favorite thing about the Internet, I think, like just being able to like basically watch whatever TV you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you think about like if we would have lived in like 1995, like. Bro, you you would have maybe seen like one or two Metallica interviews in your life on TV. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you would have had to have like known they were going to be on Headbangers Ball and shit, or caught a rerun and got lucky. You know what I mean? You didn't have TV Guide. You know what I mean? It wasn't like you could like go and like look to see when it was going to be on. Even you know what I mean? You had to just be like watching MTV or VH1 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And. uh and just catch that it was going to be on and then catch it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Speaking of. I love you. I love YouTube. Oh, my God. YouTube's <laughs> the shit. Um, speaking of going back in time, are we ready to do on this day in many music history? Born ready. All right. Start us off, Connor. Good old 1970. 
1970, the soundtrack for the movie Woodstock is released, featuring recordings from the festival. Those who were there realize it didn't sound nearly as good as they remembered it. (laughs) (laughs) I think John Fogarty never uh, authorized the release of their live show that night because he always thought it was a subpar credence performance. That's insane. I think we had talked about this before, like the idea of a subpar credence uh, show is like our idea of like having our best show. Well, yeah, it's crazy because dude, John Fogarty has been doing the live streams and stuff with like his kids and like they're killing it. And it's like, how the hell could the actual credence not kill it at Woodstock? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you though, man. The album that was Humans. obviously released, it actually was released in 2019 of their Woodstock set. Oh, well, um, it only took what 50 years. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they they must have done a lot of decent amount of polishing on that album because, I mean, I've listened to it and I mean, it's not horrible. It's not like the way they're making it seem. Yeah, I you know think I, I, mean? I feel like I, I, I've listened to it on YouTube before just to see what, because that's like kind of like a famous thing in Woodstock lore is that Credence yeah. like thought they bombed or whatever. And, I just think uh, this, the set list organization was kind of fucking out there, though. It was all over. Yeah, I think it's more just their sound wasn't the best. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't their fault, really. Yeah, and I, if you're I, playing... If you're playing and and you know the sound isn't good, it becomes very like uh, draining. You know what I mean? You just don't feel like doing it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it it's funny. It says on the, uh, the old Wikipedia CCR was the first act to sign a contract for August Woodstock Festival in '69. Guess how much that contract? The was. contract itself, or how, how much, much they got paid back in the day? How much they got paid? For that con for signing the contract, close ten thousand, which is equivalent to seventy thousand U.S. dollars today. Damn. Yeah. Damn. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to take us into (laughs) 1972. Uh, John Lennon goes on the Dick Cavett show and mentions that the FBI is monitoring him. He turns out to be right. He's full of shit. He is the FBI. So, uh, what do we got nine years later in in 1981, Steve? 1981, the beloved Bob Marley dies at the age of 36 after a long battle with cancer. Um, Bob Marley. It's funny because Bob Marley to me is like the same way I treat Frank Zappa. I mean, his greatest years were with the Whalers. I think Bob Marley and the Whalers probably. It's just undeniable music. Oh, his solo really? music is undeniable too. It, it is, but just there's a, cause you get such a different aspect when he was with the Whalers. I think like Bob Marley and the Whalers just does something for me more than because I think it's just a lot of his stuff. Like growing up was so overplayed for me as a kid, and I and like all the posters and everybody like wanted to like oh I smoke weed at the age of thirteen so I have a Bob Marley poster I'm gonna <laughs> have to hang this up. Yeah. Like I they just got it's got so overdone for me that. I mean, going back now and like really diving into like the deeper cuts by Bob Marley, it's just I found a, like a newfound respect in listening to his early albums with like the Whalers and stuff. I can, oh, yeah. I can agree with for, that. For my family, Bob Marley was church music. We literally listened to it every Sunday morning <laughs> growing up. Really? <laughs> you're not kidding? Yep. I'm not kidding. Huh. 
listen to Bob Marley every. I thought Bob Marley was church music until I was like eleven or twelve. <laughs> See that that I can respect, not just the individuals that like the Rasta colors and immediately equated that to like being cool and like you know. A I, I thought it was literally just like uh, <laughs> ethnic church music that my dad liked. Like I liked it. I was like Bob Marley's great, but I thought it was church music. Because it was all like, could you be loved? (laughs) Could you be loved? (laughs) Yeah. That's a truth tree moment there for Connor. Truth tree. Connor Mm -hmm. thought Bob Marley was church music. That shit was the gospel. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was gospel-less, if that's a word. (laughs) So. Don't think it is. (laughs) Lastly, in uh, music history, in 1990, the late Richie Valens is finally awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I find that to be bullshit. Like that it took that long what? for him to get a star. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It. I I but I agree that it, it's it is bullshit, but I yeah. yeah, I can totally understand why. You know, his career was cut so short and at the same exact time it's you know, you got to think about what goes into doing something like that through his estate and whatever. I don't know the logistics and what it takes to get a fucking star car on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah, there but, probably I mean, has to be how... some sort of campaign for it from yeah. some sort of interest group or something. Yeah, well, because actually... I'm sure like it's the same thing with it's the same thing with like, you know, sports Hall of Fames. Like you see guys that like, oh, that that's going to be a Hall of Famer and they take years and years going through, you know, ballots and stuff and not making the cut. And then it takes them like five so many years to eventually get there. I mean, the 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 Hall of Fame or the Walk of Fame is obviously quite different in the sense that there's no real public exposure on what it takes to actually get your you know name on that you know sidewalk. Well, the reason I'm saying it's bullshit is because I've been fielding emails from the California government about getting Rage Against the Mainstream a spot on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, we're actually going to be right out. It's in front ridiculous of the we're center. not already there. Yeah, dude, tell me about it. Yeah, I've. Uh, yeah, they and we gotta get on this whole like Instagram thing. We can't even get our name legitimized. I don't even understand what that's all about. Well, I just want that blue check mark. Is that so fucking hard to ask? Yeah, that's all I want. That's all we want is a blue check mark. <laughs> yeah, what's even happening right now? Are we do we have a topic that I bill? I know we're kind of like in the quarantine process here, but uh, yeah, the topic no for need today to totally derail. is something that we've <laughs> we have talked about this separately, not on the show ever. Is like when bands play unplugged and I don't mean just like MTV's unplugged or live in New York or none of other shit. When you see a band and they play an acoustic set or an unplugged set stripped down, we can say like stripped down, stripped down. Wait, didn't we do a vote between Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Alice in Chains somehow won? No, 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 no. It was Alice in Chains lost by like a couple votes. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. Um, yeah. (laughs) I feel like that was bullshit. <laughs> Anyways. No, it wasn't. The, all right, moving on. Whatever. Moving on. Yeah, moving we've, on. Already, we've already <laughs> argued about this. Um, do you feel like unplugged performances can show a good or a bad band? By what I mean is, well, like, do you feel uh-huh. like this could, like, let's say, like, for instance, you have a band that's, like, extremely good and they're extremely good live, but they're just, their songs just aren't made for like an unplugged type setting, do you feel like this could help or hurt like an artist? So, so I, I always bring back to like live shows going back all the way to like the era of the Beatles and moving forward to even like hip hop in like the mid two thousands, early two thousands, 
where a lot of it was still strictly based on talent and not presence. Like nowadays you go to a concert or something and if it's an older band, you're going to get the same type of expectation that they've been putting out for years. If it's a newer artist, a lot of it's based on the notoriety, the presence, and they don't typically put on a show that they, you know, where you're seeing the exposure of talent. But then I noticed there's a lot of artists, newer artists even, that have done unplugged sessions that really bring out either how bad they truly are in talent-wise, because they don't have the luxury of having a huge equipment set up, having roadies and tour, you know, you know, execs helping them out with their, you know, sound setup and stuff. So you get to really see an intimate performance. And like, there are some bands to me that typically sound great on albums, typically sound great on live shows that were meant for DVD, that were planned out. And then they go out there and perform just an intimate stripped down session and you get to really see a different side of them. And some of those bands, like, I, like I've seen Halsey do a stripped down performance of like Bad at Love and it's fucking excellent. I seen Portugal the Man um, do a stripped down performance and it was fucking awesome. I've even seen like Taking Back Sunday do like a stripped down performance of what you're not typically used to in hearing in their you know, studio albums. And it was fucking awesome. That's pretty cool. And then obviously, yeah, obviously we've heard some recent ones. Um, one we can definitely bring yes. up being puddle of mud <laughs> where Yo, like, I, I still, I still think that he faked that. I think he did. That's what that, I'm, like, saying, I'm, though, no, I'm no puddle of mud fan, but like, I think he did that purposely. Like, cringeworthy but like why like, would you do that for the that's crowd. what i'm saying like, why now would people are talking about puddle of mud and arguing about yeah, but puddle that's kind of like that see that's the problem man if people are really doing shit like that at this point where you're supposed to be like 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 puddle of mud's no joke act they're not like primus no you know what i mean with the int- intent to be satirical but you're gonna uh, go out they're there kind and of way more of a joke than primus i'd say uh, no, no, i no, think no, a no, joke no. in the sense that they actually they they're seeing, they like, take serious. themselves seriously. I think. Yeah, that's, well, yeah it's the, that's what I mean. I think you could say a joke in the sense of like a band that goes out there actually trying to perform and be serious Can about you it, take putting it out all music. Away. Yeah, it's fucking awful. It's like trap. <laughs> Like I don't, I'm no trap fan either, but I'll take Headstrong over. Uh, she hates me. Anything Puddle of Mud ever did. Yeah. Yeah. She true. fucking hates me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh my God. However, you can't but, uh, deny. Worse. You can't deny. Like, Puddle of Mud's worse is probably are. worse than Nickelback. You think Puddle of Mud's worse than Nickelback? Yeah. You think? What about Imagine Dragons? Imagine Dragons takes the cake, dog. Yeah. Imagine yeah, Dragons is probably my least favorite band of all fucking time. Yeah. They're really that bad. I hate, I hate their Imagine sound. Dragons. You I know, I actually seen it. It's funny. I actually same. saw. Now that we mentioned them, I saw a stripped down performance of them back in like uh, I want to say oh, 2014. Sounds terrible. And it, yeah, <laughs> dude, like there's just some bands that not only are they bad, but then they go out there and it's just not good. I mean, even like for instance, but then there's other bands that I don't like and that do live performances, and you get to see and actually appreciate it. Like for instance, like the band Shine Down. I don't know if you know, remember Shine Down. Yeah. yeah um, um, when they did that performance, they actually did it live on a radio. I think it was ninety three three or one zero two nine. I remember they did uh, Simple Man cover. Oh, that was Moore. Yeah, I played the it was on the radio a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and well that's the thing. When I first heard it, I severely enjoyed it. I was like, all right, I'm not even a huge fan of Shine Down. I don't like their fucking studio work, but that was a great cover. You got to see oh, these yeah. guys actually have some talent behind them. But then it became like a fucking song. Like now I, I feel hear like they it had, all, like 
one song that when they first came out that was all right, and then they sucked all after that. I, yeah, yeah. I don't like their singer really. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like they like yeah. try too hard to be like a southern rock sort of sounding kind of band. Do they have I mean? a song that's like the sound of something? No. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe um, are you thinking of Disturbed? The sound of silence. Oh uh, yeah, that might be it. Yeah, fucking it. cover. Oh don't even God. get me started with that Talk shit. About, like, I don't want this to become a cover ever. thing because like that's terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I honestly almost thought about picking that for the thirty day yeah. challenge just to fuck with everybody. <laughs> I wanted to bring up Pearl Jam in this segment though. Um, so I'm not a big fan of Pearl Jam's unplugged performance from 1992. Their official I really like don't MTV why, unplugged. You like it? I love it. Okay, I don't know. It's for me. I'm just not crazy about it. Like, I'll ne- like. I, I thought don't black know. was good. I, I never go to it, dude. The the I state th- of love I thought and they trust. did it too early in their career. I agree. That's my problem. I agree. Right, I think because they only did like five or six songs. A couple yeah. of them weren't that great. Um, in my book, and um, if they would have waited till like '96 to do unplugged, they or like '97, they would have got shit because. They would have been doing it after Nirvana did it. Yeah. But um, they at least should have done it a second time or something. But then what I was getting at with this, too, was that Into the Wild, I love. So, like, later yeah, on, you know, Eddie Vedder, I think, later on was uh, more suited towards um, the Unplugged setting. Oh, well, it's, it's funny you mention that because I remember when that soundtrack came out. Um, you yeah, had I showed have it on me. CD. Yeah. yeah, and um, after like doing that later on, I think I brought it up to uh, my fiance at one point and mentioned that album because we were listening to Pearl Jam and shit. So she wound up diving in and like <laughs> she sent me that album, the ukulele songs that he released in 2011. Yeah, I never listened to that one. And yeah, he's totally. You could see even here, like even going to Vitology, like Vitology, like you got to see like a different side of Pearl Jam and the ability. And then obviously Eddie Vedder doing his solo stuff with the End of the Wild soundtrack and then hearing that ukulele songs album. I mean, did you like that, ukulele see, songs? Me, what did you like ukulele songs? I'm going to tell you right now. It's not it, it, if you like the Into the Wild soundtrack, I think you'll enjoy it. Yep. Um, okay. But if you're just a fan of Pearl Jam, I don't think you'll enjoy it. Put it that. I mean, if you like new Pearl Jam, you probably will. Oh, but God. you gotta like appreciate Eddie Vedder solo shit before you actually can listen okay. to that because it's totally different. Definitely not as good as Into the Wild, though. No, no, no. I don't put compare it to that. It's different. It's 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 all ukulele yeah. track. Every song's yeah, on a yeah. ukulele. Into the um, album, Into the Wild, really was something special. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Unlike Gigaton. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. grunge, Puts I definitely shame. want to bring up Alice in Chains' is Unplugged. Now, of course you do. Yeah, well, dude, I mean, let's be real for a second. <laughs> Alice in Chains put out a full acoustic album that everyone knows as Jar of Flies. I do f- twice. Don't forget Sap. Yeah, and Sap. But I do feel like uh, Alice in Chains may have had an unfair advantage opposed to other bands that had done unplugged sessions before due to the fact that fucking about 70% of their catalog is done on acoustic guitars and acoustic instruments. I mean, I don't. Yeah, yeah. that's I think why I never really cared for Alice in Chains unplugged that much. I have it. I've had it for years. I probably listened to it like three times. I, um, I think it just what never gets calls me, me. 
I think what um, really gets me about that, I mean, because we always debate that in Nirvana. I'd rather Nirvana's, listen to Sap and Jar of Flies. Yeah, like Nirvana's to me is just because of how different it was introducing the covers, bringing on the meat puppets. Um, obviously, you know, Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam. I mean, all the different, you know, aspects that they brought to the stage and just the quality of the performance. But Nerv- the thing about Alice in Chains is because we're we talking about with Pearl Jam, where they did it so early in their career. Alice in Chains also had it to play everything. They had their entire discography at their disposal. Yeah. And I think that's what really did it because the track listing for that is an album where it's over an hour long and every fucking song is enjoyable. Every, every but again, song. I think every song, but again, it's the same thing where it's like, you can say the same thing about Nirvana's. It's just Nirvana does something different. Yeah. Nirvana's was shorter. It was sweeter. It was just, I think just sounded better. I think it just flowed better. But I mean, I'm never going to deny like saying one's better than the other. I mean, it's like debating, you know, ribeye or porterhouse. I'm going to eat both of them. One of them may be better, but I'm going to fucking eat them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, they're both good, but yeah. Yeah. What you all just said was correct in my book. Like, I, I don't know. I just I've always felt like Nirvana has been like, I'm not going to say to like the point of the Beatles with the over bloatedness of their well, at least Nirvana wrote their own material. Well, that too. But, like, I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and sit here and say, like, you know, like, Nirvana was completely overblown and they weren't really that good. But I, I mean, I just, I, I've, I've gotten to this argument with, all, with both of you guys before. I just don't feel like, as a band individually, they were better than any of the other Seattle bands, like, period. Well, particularly on Unplugged, you got Chris Novoselic playing, like, uh, accordion you got like fucking um, oh, Lori Goldston on cello like the whole thing you know what I mean yeah, I forgot like, about that some shit bro I feel like what the meat puppets what could have put Alice in Chains over the edge probably would have been if they would have had all the instrumentals for I Stay Away Alice in Chains should have said fuck it and brought on like some other grunge motherfucker they should have did fucking right like, uh, turn that's what they should have did yeah, if they would have had Chris Cornell on for right turn, that would have been some shit. You know, that's always yeah. what annoyed me when I saw, you know, that infamous story of me going to see Soundgarden and them not playing Black Hole Sun. What also annoyed me was that Alice in Chains was on the same bill and they didn't do right turn. Like that shit annoyed me probably yeah, even more sucks. than Black Hole Sun. Like you have the opportunity right in here. He might not have wanted to do it without Lane. Uh, that's a possibility. Chris. Now, here's the thing, though. See, when we talk about these albums, like, I mean, you, you know, already being fans of Alice in Chains, already being fans of Nirvana, it's like those albums don't see like it's different. Like a lot of unplugged albums can like make or break an artist. I mean, even if Nirvana and Alice in Chains had put out a shit one, it wouldn't really change my mind so much on the albums they had already put out because I appreciate the music. And then there's other artists that I don't like that do an unplug session and I hear it from a different sound and I'm like, wow, these guys are actually fucking talented. It's pretty good music because I'll never limit myself to genre. Like when we talk about especially the grunge scene, like I was always a huge fan of Stone Temple Pilots. Like I always liked Core, you know, I always liked Purple, but I never could really put them in the same league for a period of time. And then when I heard that unplugged album and especially saw the video of it, you know, the way they did sex type thing, that song Andy Warhol that they do off Gosh. of there and like hearing a totally different. Yeah, I mean, but just hearing a totally different sound from them and still producing like a quality element like that really put me over the top with like Scott Weiland and that entire band. Oh, yeah, I can like, hear that, that unplugged. 
you know, that's like one of those few unplugs that of band that I already appreciated, like maybe appreciate them even fucking further. Now, what about like, um, like I know Connor doesn't really care for this particular artist that much, but with the likes of like Eric Clapton and his unplug, do you feel like having like a veteran, like, I guess, you know, like legacy artist to be able to do an unplug. Do you feel it's just kind of like one of those like jerk off sessions? Like we already know that you're Eric Clapton. You really didn't need to do this. Exactly. Well, see, this is the problem. Like Eric Clapton gets put in the same league as like a Tom Brady or a fucking LeBron James. You're going to hate on him because the guy is successful and he did what he did. But at the same time, he's a fucking I mean, dickhead. <laughs> he is a dickhead at the end of the day, dude. But I don't put it in a league where it's like, dude, if I like the music, I like the music. I like fucking cream. I like Eric and the dominoes and I like a lot of his solo yeah. shit. The unplugged he did. I mean, yeah, I think that is to put it more on a pedestal. Like here, Eric Clapton. I mean, a lot of people. Oh, he's the greatest guitarist of people all time. People like it because never saw Jimi Hendrix play, which is great. Like, it's nice that he made a song for his recently deceased young son. Yes. But realistically, I feel like that's pretty much why the album sold a bajillion copies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it also was it the did sentimentality kind of surrounding that, that. Derek and the Dominoes classic, "A New Life." Like, honestly, I, Layla, yeah, yeah. I hear the acoustic version of Layla on the radio more than I hear the original Derek and the Dominoes version. Yep. Yeah, I know, which sucks. is a shame because you're really cutting out Dwayne Allman on there. And it's like, Layla. and I put Dwayne Allman ahead of Eric Clapton on my list of greatest. Players. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. So it's like, yeah, Dwayne Allman smokes fucking Eric Clapton in my book. 100%. Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton just Clapton has is like, like an stiff. impeccable feel. Like, that's the, that's the thing yeah. that sells Eric Clapton is his... His his like absolute tone and feel of the instrument like like we're all guitar players. This we, can, like Eric Clapton. we can understand it. Put it this way: like he's Eric like Clapton to me. Yeah, I feel like he's like a machine. I feel like he's just like the like one of the first like professional kind of guitarists. Well, that's the mean? thing. Okay. I think Eric Clapton though also had the luxury of being surrounded by a lot of talented musicians and acts so that way when he established his solo career he was already well known. Oh yeah. I mean honestly, it, I mean again, if you're relating it to sports, I mean a lot of these guys that we mentioned that are like all-stars in sports, if you look at some of their championship teams, they had a lot of assistance around them. I mean Ginger Baker it, it was like the heart and soul yeah. of Green. Yep. I mean, yeah. come on. Dwayne Allman, Derek and the Dominoes. I mean, a lot of that stuff can't be done without the other musicians surrounding him. He was also the him. Yardbirds, and, too, wasn't he? And the Yardbirds. Yeah. Is, but yeah. yeah, Jimmy Page. I mean, but, but the thing about that was, like, he had the luxury of that, to be able to be built up and establish a foundation. I mean, a lot of these other guys that we talk about kind of were just put into the mix and made a name for themselves. I mean, you didn't see Jimmy Page bounce around from band after well, band. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think Eric... I think Jimmy Page actually replaced Eric Clapton and he the did. They, he, they literally yeah. were never on an album together. I think they recorded yeah. sessions, but separately for an album, but they were never on, in the band at the same time. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. That makes total yeah, I think sense. Jeff, both, and then Jeff Beck was like the was original say, guitarist from the Yardbirds. Jeff played with right? Jimmy Page, but never played with Clapton. Or, or the other way around. I forget what it was, but yeah, all three of them Clapton. were never there at yeah. the same time. No. Could you imagine yeah. if they well, were? Well, Jimmy Page was a session musician in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. They all yeah. were, I think. Could yeah. you imagine the music that would have been created if Page, fucking Clapton, and Beck were all in the same room together? Almost like a, a yeah, realistic... Yeah, all the raw talent prior to, like, yeah, yeah, prior to Cream, prior to Zeppelin. I mean, like, Jeez. like a realistic version of <laughs> It Might Get Loud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude. Yeah, that it was might rough, get loud. Dude. It was weak. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was rough, dude. Yo, yeah, wait. Was that the and one the with um, 
Ah, yeah, shit. with that, yeah. dude. When when Jimmy Page was standing up there playing like Cashmere, I'm like, <laughs> they're just staring at him. He's playing that riff over and over again. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, the Edge is just shitting his pants. That's like watching like a 14 year old play Smoke on the Water. I can understand like the historic value behind it, but that scene did not be need to go on for like two minutes. <laughs> dude, uh, like, Jack White and, teaching him how to play Seven Nation Army. The effects oh, that the Edge uses. Arrogant fuck ass on air, dude. The effects that the Edge uses are all like expensive effects. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like they're, they're all like, oh yeah, I have like five different uh, effects processors on my rack mount. You know what I mean? Type shit. You know yeah, what I mean? Six delays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, cool, bro. Like, you know, I don't know. Well, that's yeah, the thing. Just, like, I feel like, you know, we talk about guitar players that have like uh, effects pedals and shit like Tom Morello, for instance. He uses Fucking these Andy pedals. Summers is better on walking on the moon. Like, and he probably just used a simple delay pedal that opening. Yeah, but, yeah, but what I like, mean, though, is that you have a player like Tom Morello who has all these effects and he uses the effects to his advantage to make new sounds and make music with them. The edge, on the yeah. other hand, uses these pedals to make his playing sound better than what it is. He doesn't use he uses them as a yeah. crutch, not as a tool. Yep. I mean, I'm pretty sure yeah. if there's any U2 fans that are listening to this podcast, which I believe by this point we should have weeded them all out with our anti U2 talk. But if there is any, I'm pretty sure we'll hear some flack about that one. The Edge sucks. Let's be real. What's interesting to me is that was there ever actually any U2 fans? Do you guys know any real U2 fans? My mom no. was, was a it U2 all a conspiracy? Fan, early U2. No, my okay. dad's a Sunday Bloody Sunday <laughs> fan, but he's not a U2 fan. Because I have this I issue where my father yeah, listens to Sirius XM, and anytime fucking Sammy Hagar or fucking U2 comes on the radio, and I'm like, Dad, let me just connect my Bluetooth and get this over with. He's like, no, I like the song. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, I have to deal with this now. So anytime Sunday Bloody I Sunday comes on. I 80s U2 fans. Yes, I like some 80s U2 stuff. Okay, but like people who got into U2 like as they were coming out, like I get it. Like they were like that was that was the uh, entry of post punk in America. Basically, there was nothing else getting played on the radio like that. At the end of the day, by the 90s, if you were still like an avid music fan and still repping U2. You uh eh. shit for brains. Bottom line, at the end of the day, Edge was a co-conspirator in the iPhone catastrophe of 2014, and therefore I refuse to give any respect to him or any of the equipment <laughs> that he uses in making it sound. All right. That's so, on the record. So reeling this back into the topic, I don't know how the fuck are we got on the U2 topic. The edge. Well, yeah, the edge we went from like, yo, like, never do you like unplugged? unplugged? We went like, do you like unplugged albums? So like, fuck Edge. <laughs> Well, you, well, you, at the edge is why you two never did an unplugged album. That's true. Because you, you can't do, you can't do you two without with unplugged setting. Like no way. Reeling this back into the original topic, which was <laughs> unplugged, uh, doing unplugged <laughs> sessions or you know stripped down oh. sessions for artists. Do you feel like this is a fair way to be able to judge a band or artist or whatever, or do you feel like you know? Do you feel like the studio is like the perfect setting to be able to determine or a live setting? But do you feel like bands should be on a different level or judged due to their unplugged or stripped down settings? 
This is I what think... I kind of meant to. Sorry, this Go is ahead. what I kind of meant to. I just realized this. This is what I kind of meant to get at with Pearl Jam. Was like, I'm not crazy about their unplugged, but I don't think unplugs necessarily like make or break a band. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, honestly, yeah. I mean, honestly, it kind of depends on the genre. It depends. Death on... can't do an unplugged. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. I mean they could. It probably just wouldn't. They'd have to really mic up those guitars to keep up with the drums. (laughs) But here's the thing, though. There are some bands, and I can think of two off the top of my head, and there's probably hundreds more, but there's two that come to the top of my head, and one being the Lumineers and the other one being of Monsters and Men. They go out there and produce studio albums with electric equipment, and then they perform that way in live shows. However, they're a band that built solely off of being an unplugged, stripped-down artist. Like You can totally hear that, especially the Lumineers. Mm -hmm. And a band like that, if you go out there and perform an intimate performance that's just your acoustics, your voices, and some fucking bongos for all I know, if it doesn't sound good, then there's something fucking wrong. Almost like a Mumford and Sons you know, type situation. Exactly. Like if you're, yeah, Mumford and Sons. Like all, like I, I mean, we watch, um, we talk about MTV Unplugged and all these different strip sessions, but like even um, the NPR Tiny Desk sessions. I mean, I've seen like. Lots of artists go through there, even up to like Mac Miller, do like a stripped down performance in this little tiny bookstore, pretty much. I think it's in New York. And it's a great way to see artists of all different qualities and genres go in there, do a stripped down performance. And a lot of it fucking work. And to me, that can generally show raw talent, but I don't think it necessarily makes or breaks depending on the genre. Another one, too. I don't know if either of you have ever seen it, but um, the Audio Tree live sessions. You ever watch any of those? No, I never heard of yeah, it. Do yourself a favor and check it. Check it out on YouTube. It's called Audio Tree Live. And it's just like exactly what you were just saying, Steve. Stripped down sessions with artists. And it's, you know, like professionally produced and stuff, but it's live. And I feel like yeah. that that type of situation, if you completely bomb a session like that to where it is in a studio type setting and you do have you know equipment but it is just a stripped down version of what you have and you bomb that i feel like what you were saying like that is a 100 percent you suck like yeah like it's not like i mean like oh well you know i'm not used to playing an acoustic guitar so you know i can't do it yeah like they gave you all the opportunities to be good because i base talent off of the idea like you know even if i can think of like golfers like you know there's all this golf equipment out there but a real talented professional golfer could use a fucking broomstick with a club head and be able to play nearly as well just because they have the talent. Yeah, exactly. You know, you shouldn't have to use the equipment, rely on the studio and the effects that you're going to get at a live venue and be able to produce that talent. Like another one off that tiny desk sessions, for instance, that really stood out like Florence and the machine. They have a lot of effects in their music. They do a lot of things on stage, but then I saw a stripped down performance with it where it was just Florence Welsh, a keyboard and someone playing the harp. And it was fucking amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even like uh, Foster the People did one, and it was fucking awesome. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, there's so many that were on there where you get to really see bands that like have a lot of effects in their audio music, and then you get to see a stripped-down version of it with just what they're left at their disposal and comes out really well most of the time. Well, I guess that kind of wraps that one up. I guess the general consensus is, is unplugged or stripped-down sessions well, unplug sessions can't determine a good or bad band. However, a stripped down session when given, you know, I guess let's say like 70% of their arsenal 
if you do not perform up to up to the standard at a stripped down session, then that can 100% determine whether or not you are good or worth your weight. Can yeah. we all agree on that one? Yeah. Yeah. And let's Real just quick, have another yeah. general consensus favorite unplugged stripped down album. Album or do you just want to pick just in general? Album. Alice in Chains album. unplugged. It's got to be actually okay, Connor. Does it need to be said? <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't need to be said either. We already know what it is. It's a two, two on three majority on over here. MTV unplugged in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's it's two against three in the majority over here. Hey, that's, uh, that's I fun. was going to say, though, you know what show I did like that I think was kind of a happy medium? VH1 Storytellers. Yeah. Mm. Storytellers. That was like yeah. stripped down uh, performances, but you could still use electrics and yada, yada. Foo Fighters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, yeah, cable television really fucked up with the way they messed with VH1 and MTV. Oh, my God, I'm telling dude. you that right now. Yeah. Fucking ridiculous. You want to talk about, like, you know, they're making vinyls popular again. I think they're talking about remaking, like, Dunkaroos. They got Cinnamon Toast Crunch oh, or the French Toast Crunch. All these 90s gear coming back out. MTV needs to just go total hipster and bring back the era of music television. I yes. agree. That's my yes. proposal. I guess let's get into our personal suggestions for this week. Uh, who wants to go first? Or do you want me to go first? You go first. Uh, My yeah. suggestion for this week is to check out the Coheed and Cambria 2004 album In Keeping Secrets of Silent Earth 3. The song... Oh, you were serious about yeah, that, huh? The song to check out is <laughs> A Fever House Atlantic. Um, oh, wow. This is like early Coheed and Cambria. Yeah, bad. this is early Coheed and Cambria, not fucking Welcome Home or The Suffering and, you know, shit off like their later albums that, you know everyone liked and you know whatever because it was popular this is the kind of shit to where you had to be like a coheed and cambria fan or at least have some sort of knowledge within their world to be to like their music and i feel like a favor house atlantic is one of those songs to where if you're into this type of like progressive type rock music this is something to check out and plus i think coheed and cambria is a pretty good fucking band no one can tell me otherwise. Yeah, I actually like that song. I'm not even going to lie. I like that song a Dude, lot. it's good. And they're another band, yeah. too. Like, they did a Guitar Center Sessions, and um, it was a stripped-down yeah. setting, dude, and they are fucking incredible. They did a favorite House Atlantic, yeah. and it's really good. Yeah. Go check that out on YouTube, son. <laughs> so, who wants to go next? Connor. All right, I'll go. All right, I got the uh, fourth Breeders album from 2008, Mountain Battles. Um, I got this around when it came out, and I hadn't listened to it in quite in a while, and I gave it a listen, and it's pretty damn good. I got to say. Mountain Battles, a, huh? Yeah, I like it. Um, I'm going to add that because I, I haven't really listened to much uh, from the Breeders other than their first. Actually, it's, it's, Pod I listened to, and as well as Last Splash. What's your What's your it's song? It's like Connor? not. Uh, there's a couple good ones. the The best one to check out, I guess, is Over Glee's the first one. Um, but um, it's a good album. Like it's 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 really just maybe a hair not a, a hair away from being as good as Last Splash. Like if. <laughs> If it had a cannonball or something like, you know, what I mean, that would have like really taken it up. But it's not like they they weren't gearing up for hits on this album at all. 
I'm going to have to check that out. Straight, straight up breeders. Nice. None of the uh, commercial nonsense. Awesome. What do you got, Steve? Um, so I, I've just noticed I haven't recommended much punk rock music in my time of being on this show, which happens to be my second favorite genre of music. I'm going to recommend the 1980 album by the band The Circle Jerks. The album is entitled Group Sex, featuring the greatest singer ever to premiere on a Black Flag album, that being Keith Morris. <laughs> um, the song is, uh, I'm highly recommending his track five. It's called Back Against the Wall. Nice. Yes. Oh, did Cage the Elephant cover that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking cage the elephant. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> nice. Another um, I like Cage. I like their I earlier like music. I definitely like that. I definitely like their when second. They first bro, came their out. second album's fire. No lie. What? Thank uh, yeah. you. Happy birthday. Yeah, I fucking love that album. Uh, All right, hipster. To it again. I'm not really fucking fan of it. Check out Always Something. Shake me down. Yeah, that's on there. It's a great song. It's uh, Beatles Good, a band with a <laughs> team of professional songwriters, top of the class. Stay tuned for on the episode where we investigate if Cage the Elephant writes their own music. <laughs> oh, they do, bro. They're the real deal. <laughs> our group suggestion, our group suggestion for this week is to check out the Drew Stone do- uh, directed documentary. Who the fuck is that guy? The fabulous journey of Michael Aligo. Um, this is a documentary that follows around uh, Michael Aligo, who is a um, basically an A&R rep that wound up signing a shit ton of bands, uh, ranging from, you know, uh, White Zombie to Cindy Lauper, uh, Nina Simone to Metallica. Um, oh, Phil Anselmo's. Yeah, huh? Phil Anselmo. Um, he, this dude has worked with, like, everybody. I mean... Like pretty much music that we all like, like it's all because of this dude. And um yeah, it's definitely something to check out on Netflix, our Netflix movie recommendations. But that's another episode of the Quarantine Chronicles for the book. As always, you can get us on our social medias, Instagram and Twitter at RATM Podcast, our Facebook at Facebook.com slash R-A-T-M podcast. And if you have any submissions for music or questions, concerns, um, suggestions, whatever, you can get us at R-A-T-M podcast at gmail.com. But once again, this is Rage Against the Mainstream signing off. I'm Bill. I'm Kanner. I'm Steve. Have a good night, guys. Thank you for listening.